Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Kaveh Sharuz, lawyer, human rights activist, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're joining me from your office in Mississauga. Hello. Hi, good to be with you, Justin. Kaveh, today we're going to talk about how Canada is being politely dragged into yet another global conflict. But don't worry, it's probably no big deal. And the CBC's fifth estate goes to work for Trump. Not kidding. This episode is brought to you by Chris New, Jacqueline Fleisig, Fayaz Shagani, Ada Schofield, Brian Rice, Gervais Bush, Elizabeth Hall, and Carlos. My name is Carlos and I'm a digital audience strategist, born and raised in Montreal, but living in Toronto for the past six years. Both myself and my wife have been proud supporters of Canada Land since 2015. I gladly support Canada Land because it offers a real take on what's happening behind the scenes in the Canadian media landscape. The Canada Land team provides news and information that isn't skewed or driven by clicks, which is a welcome break from ad supported media. I also really appreciate Jesse's honesty, especially when he pisses off his guests. So, Kaveh, first of all, I appreciate that we're talking on what has got to be one of the most difficult weeks for Iranian Canadians and, and the Iranian Canadian community, just an atrocious uh, set of news stories and circumstances. Uh, that I imagine is affecting most Iranian Canadian families personally. So I, I appreciate you joining me uh, at a difficult time. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, as we're recording, um, you know, I'm seeing my social media feed filled with uh, friends who, who know people that were killed in this plane crash. So it's, it's pretty awful. It's terrible, I'm sure, first and foremost, for your community. It's confusing 
writ large to imagine could this not be connected to the targeted assassination? And I guess we just don't know yet. And when I don't know what's going on with world events, I'll admit, despite my criticisms of the Globe and Mail, they're not my go-to to find out what's happening in Iran. I'll, I'll get that news elsewhere. But when I want to know what the Canadian side of that is, like how does this affect Canada and what's, what's the Canadian relation to this story, I do go to the Globe and Mail for that analysis. And when I went to the Globe and Mail for analysis of this targeted assassination, I have to tell you, I got really mixed messages. On the one hand, there was an editorial board opinion piece that was a headline, Donald Trump crosses a line in Iran, but it's not the end of the world. And it was a strange piece where paragraph after paragraph, it built the case as just how chaotic and uh, destabilizing the killing of Soleimani uh, was and how like, you know, basically an act of war that they don't use those terms, but that uh, this wasn't like killing an uh, ISIS leader or something. This is this is a high ranking member of state. The implications are unknown and the justification for this has not really been made. The evidence hasn't been shown. It builds, it builds, it builds. And then it says, but to those of you who are saying that this is World War Three, don't worry, it's not. What this killing will not do is lead to a major conflict between Iran and the United States. There will be no third world war, as some have worried. It's not the end of the world. And that's sort of cold comfort, because I, I don't necessarily know that it's the end of the world or World War Three, but that there's a lot of space in between that for it to be a big problem. But then also in the Globe and Mail, there's this piece by Hugh Siegel, which tells me that, you know, this has major implications for Canada. We're a NATO partner and we could get dragged into a military conflict. And, and, and basically, as you read that piece, you can kind of hear like war drums slowly, like the, that steady rhythm kind of building. And am I supposed to feel reassured or do I feel like we're getting dragged into a war? This is your area of expertise. How do you take this coverage? Well, you know, as as between the Globe and Mail's editorial board and Hugh Siegel, I think on this one, I actually am on the side of the Globe and Mail editorial board. I don't think we're going to be dragged into war. I think, um, you know, again, as we speak, last night we had Iran retaliating and its foreign minister went took to Twitter and said that that was basically effectively all they were going to officially do. I mean, they, they may go on and do things through proxies. But uh, look, I, I don't think we're headed for a war because I think Iran's leaders understand that engaging in a war is going to be the end of their regime. And they are ultimately interested in self-preservation. Iran pretends that it's an ideological state. It pretends that it's a, you know Islamic state. But at the end of the day, I think if you follow Iran closely, what you know is that it is fundamentally a criminal state run by a mafia that's interested in power and wealth. And they know that if they go head-to-head -head against NATO or the United States, they will be crushed and they will be ousted. And so I actually don't worry very much about any sort of large-scale war. There may be, you know, attacks of the nature you saw last night. There may be, um, you know, some proxy fights here and there, all, all of which are, you know, bad and destabilizing. But I, I don't think we're headed for anything close to World War III or a major, major conflict. I mean, that almost sounds like it validates what Trump did, if he could kind of flex muscle without major repercussions. And there doesn't seem to be any controversy as to whether or not this guy is a valid target for other reasons and that he's taken American lives. And my hesitation, I suppose, is that it feels like, isn't it hard to predict outcomes when you're dealing with such an unprecedented action in such a volatile region? 
So it's, you know, it's difficult to predict outcomes because you don't really know what Donald Trump is going to do. He's kind of a, you know, I don't need to describe to you or to your listeners what Donald Trump is like. He's, he's a little bit unstable and hard to predict. But I think this is one of those cases where the unpredictability actually may be helpful. Again, I, I go back to my point. We, we saw last night that Iran, you know, had been promising for a couple of days that it would take hard revenge. I mean, that was, that was their phrase. Mm-hmm. And it didn't do very much. Ultimately, they shot a few rockets into the desert and they called it a day. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is some degree of instability because you, you just never know what Trump is going to do. But I, I think the Iranians, if you keep in mind what I mentioned a minute ago, which is that they're a criminal state interested in preserving their power, you know that they will not escalate beyond a certain point because, um, I mean, they are interested in saving face, but more importantly, they're interested in saving their hold on power. And your analysis of the regime is that not only is it, is it a illegitimate mafioso regime, but it's a paper tiger that's more afraid of overthrow from its own people so that they're just going to cling to power. I take that as your analysis. I guess there's a, a wider question of like there is a line that was stepped over here in terms of just sort of statecraft and, and to go and, and assassinate a member of, of a state like that is a new precedent. And for that to be like, oh, well, no big deal. It, it, is, uh, to, it is to some extent. But I mean, I, I know there is debate about this among legal scholars. I am a lawyer, not a legal scholar necessarily, but I, I do understand the Trump administration's um, legal justification for this. Uh, you know, U.S. forces were uh, are in Iraq legally. They had been attacked, and they had been attacked by militias that are under de facto control of Iran and Qasem Soleimani in particular. So he was effectively a combatant when he stepped on Iraqi soil. And so it's not a, an answer that people like to hear, but, but the laws of war sometimes allow things like this. You know, it, it makes me uncomfortable to say positive things about the Trump administration, but I think on this one, they, their analysis is right. Can I tell you something? Yeah. During um, the early stages of potentially really big news stories, I have the sense that there's a lot of people professing authority, and I defer to your expertise on this. I, I know very little about yeah. this stuff, but... I have the sense that a lot of people are professing a level of certainty that it's impossible to have. So you tell me that this is like, you know, a paper tiger regime desperately clinging to power. And then I see footage of truly staggering numbers of people mm-hmm. taking to the streets for the funeral. And I hear that this person was a massively popular figure. And, and that suggests a massive level of popular support in Iran for the regime and probably encouraging repercussions. And to get back to the tragedy that we started talking about, this aircraft uh, going down and, and the dozens of lives that were lost. And people are trying to reassure me, well, there's no reason to believe that that's connected at this point. I'm like, well, that's fine. I I can't imagine that that evidence would be in hand just yet. But it seems reasonable to wonder if there's a connection. Is it so wrong for people to say, like, we actually don't know what this is going to mean yet when we don't have all the information yet? We don't know where this is going. So I absolutely support your skepticism of anyone claiming authority and claiming to know what's happening. Absolutely. I, I share that skepticism. And I, you know, I, anything that, that you hear, including anything I say, you ought to take with a grain of salt. But I, I don't think this kind of thing is without precedent. So the, the precedent that I would cite is the Iran-Iraq war. Um, you know, in the 80s, Iran and Iraq fought for about eight years. Iraq repeatedly made known that it, that it wanted a ceasefire. And the Iranian regime, when it had the upper hand, you know, made all sorts of claims about being a revolutionary state, a religious state, and it wasn't going to rest until it you know, got control of the Shiite holy sites in Iraq. The second the war turned, and this was in the late 80s, 87, 88, the war turned, and it really looked like the Iranian state was in trouble. What happened was 
the supreme leader then, Khomeini, came on the radio or television, I can't quite recall, talked about his phrase was drink from the poison chalice, and he accepted the terms uh, of a ceasefire, far worse terms than had been offered earlier. And he was willing to make a deal, despite all that he had said for eight years and the you know, hundreds of thousands of lives that had been lost. The second that his regime was threatened, you know, he was willing to make a deal. Subsequently, you know, in, in recent years, under the new supreme leader, there has been this uh, doctrine that Iran's clerics have talked about, which they call heroic flexibility, which means that they're willing to bend their ideology, if need be, in order to preserve what they call the system, in order to preserve the Islamic revolution. So I think throughout its 40-year history, the Islamic Republic, when the going has gotten tough, has been willing to concede. And I think this is one of those cases where they're seeing from the Trump administration that the Trump administration means business, and I think they're going to capitulate. But again, take that with a grain of salt. Nobody really knows anything. Kaveh, we take some time on this program to note duly news stories that might have escaped people's attention. There's a lot of stuff that happened over the uh, the holidays that I think got less attention than it otherwise would have. Have you brought anything for us to discuss today? Yeah, so what I've brought is a story about Ricky Gervais. I don't know if it's an undercover story, but it's one that I found interesting, and I saw that you had commented on it. And Tragically engaged. underexposed, that Ricky Gervais character. Yeah, yeah. he just doesn't get the attention he deserves. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I saw you had some disagreements with another Canadian commentator, John Kay. And I, I have to admit, I, you know, I know there's a controversy about this, but I, I just don't understand what the controversy is. You know, people are criticizing him. They're saying he was punching down. He was, you know, uh, attacking marginalized people. And I, I just don't get it. And I saw, you know, an article in the Toronto Star, I think it was today or maybe yesterday, talking about the facts, you know, laying out a case for what he did wrong. And I still am not clear. I don't know, Jesse, do you have a sense of what he did wrong? I haven't seen the monologue, so I have no idea if he did anything wrong. Oh, so what were you fighting about online? (laughs) I wasn't fighting with anyone. Uh, So Ben Shapiro tweeted, the hilarity of Gervais taking a massive dump all over these self-aggrandizing Hollywood know-nothings while they're trying to ignore him and weepily virtue signal to each other. It's just the all caps best thing ever. And John Kay tweeted, best Ricky Gervais joke tonight was when he said he wouldn't do the in memoriam segment because the dead list wasn't diverse enough. But the whole thing was just such a fantastic fuck you to woke Hollywood. And it pissed off all the right people. What an amazing voice of sanity. And for two people who are expressing their appreciation for a comedy monologue, I thought they sounded incredibly angry. And I tweeted, like, these guys seem like they're confusing, angrily pumping their fist in the air with laughing at something. And uh, I feel like in the wake of that Gervais monologue, which, you know, I'm familiar with his material at the Golden Globes, he attacks Hollywood for its sanctimony and smugness. And that seemed to divide the world. Well, it didn't even divide the world because I didn't see anyone on the other side. I just uh, there were a lot of people who felt incredibly validated by Gervais taking a shot at Hollywood, and I I, I don't really truck with Hollywood, but I just felt like uh, there was something like a, a, just a, a little too personal and passionate about people's agreement with Gervais. Yeah, no, I I don't think it's accurate to say that nobody took offense at what Gervais said. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at Monday's. Toronto Star, I'm just digging it up. Uh, their national columnist, Emma Title. I, I may be getting her pronouncing her last name wrong. She's, She's my first a, cousin. It's Emma Title, but please proceed. <laughs> yeah, what, what did Emma say? Um, she talked about Gervais's sneering Golden Globe monologue and what's wrong with it. Uh, you know, she was she was pointing out that, uh, you know, this, this was a piece that, that sort of talked, basically promoted apathy, uh, political apathy, by telling Hollywood stars that they should you know, shut up and accept the reward. Uh, you know, you had Slate 
having their media columnists beat up on Gervais and talking about how this was, you know, a really mean-spirited monologue. I saw a whole bunch of commentary on Twitter from from TV people saying, you know, he was punching down. And that's, that's really the part that I, I just absolutely do not understand. There's nothing punching down about making fun of Hollywood royalty. Hollywood is fair game. I agree with you there. I'm not sure about the slight piece. If we're talking about the same one, I just saw like a slight piece that was like, here are the jokes that worked. Here are the jokes that missed. Like it just seemed kind of like a rundown for people who missed the monologue. But uh, you know what? I have no trouble with him insulting Hollywood. It's always kind of fun to watch when he does that. But the idea that like, you know, they should just keep their fucking mouths shut when it comes to uh, saying anything political. I I did read uh, that joke of his. I don't know. I'm like, you know, the world is in a pretty precarious state. Everybody's pretty concerned about it. And, you know, there's a ton of attention going to things like the Golden Globes. You know, I, I, I don't find those kind of messages all that effective when, when Hollywood people speak up. You know, but like, I don't know, Russell Crowe's like in Australia. Australia's on fire. It would be equally offensive to people if they just sort of like existed in some bubble of luxury and acted like, you know, the world isn't on fire. I, like, I don't know. You know what? Ultimately, who cares? It's just like the idea that the real enemy is smug, sanctimonious Hollywood and that like finally someone's given them theirs. It, it just feels like a huge aside to me. Well, I think it's it's the virtual signaling from Hollywood that really rubs people the wrong way. Right. And I, sure. I think that was the context of uh, Gervais's joke. I mean, he was talking about the fact that you guys are working for companies like, you know, Apple that uh, use child labor. And yet you come up here and, and lecture the rest of us about how we should be living our lives. I think there is something valuable in, in pointing out that hypocrisy, don't you think? I guess so. I guess anyone with an iPhone could be accused. I don't know, man. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine to insult <laughs> celebrities. I have no problem with it. Duly noted. All right. Excellent. <laughs> I, I, I have one. This all kind of like uh, got reported throughout the holidays and uh, it got a fair amount of attention, but not nearly enough. The Guardian had an exclusive on a Canadian story. Uh, not the first time. They reported on December 20th that Canadian police were prepared to shoot indigenous activists, according to documents they obtained. And this is uh, with reference to the conflict in Wet'suwet'en Nation. And they they reported, the Guardian did, that they had notes from an RCMP process where RCMP commanders instructed officers to use as much violence towards the gate as you want. A very concerning story that they were prepared to like use snipers and, and lethal overwatch is required. Shocking story, really, the idea that they would just shoot dead protesters. And the response in Canadian media was from the Globe and Mail. Three days later, the headline read, RCMP deny media report that they were prepared to shoot Indigenous activists. But the actual content of the Globe story did not include a denial. What was documented was the RCMP challenged that report and said that, you know, they they went through their materials and they could find no documents or references in their own materials to support that that had ever happened. But just on the level of reason, the Guardian story said that it was based on notes that they had obtained. So would that even necessarily be in the RCMP's files through official documents if somebody was taking notes at a meeting and that was said verbally? And furthermore, why does the headline go further than the actual report? The RCMP are challenging this, but like, why does the Globe and Mail assert that they're denying that this ever happened? Well, the next day, the Guardian went and provided a lot more context on their story. And I actually saw a Canadian journalist saying, oh, that Guardian story is too thinly sourced, you know, 
Well, the Guardian came out and said, well, we'll tell you exactly how we know this. The records seen by the Guardian emerged during court proceedings in British Columbia. They include detailed notes from an RCMP strategy session on January 6th in Smithers, British Columbia, which involved RCMP gold and silver commanders from the agency's E-Division and which were recorded by a designated scribe. So the story seems rock solid. And then that's it. The Globe and Mail did not amend their earlier story. Nobody else picked this up or looked into it. So we've got like a foreign newspaper telling us that Mounties were prepared to shoot protesters. you got the Globe and Mail running interference for the RCMP, in fact, overstating the RCMP's case. Once again, the Globe and Mail trying to put out the flames of a story rather than get more information about a story, trying to kind of say nothing to see here, folks. And then it just disappears. And that Globe and Mail story seems to be the extent of their coverage on it. And I think there should have been a bigger discussion about that. And uh, it just seemed, seemed to die uh, with the new year. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know about any of this. This is super interesting. Can I just ask something slightly related to that? Why are Canadian media outlets getting scooped on all these big stories? I'm thinking of the Trudeau blackface story during the elections, and that's something that Canadian media had missed. It seems like there are these major stories that just our reporters are not looking into. You said a mouthful. I mean, why did Time Magazine have the Trudeau brownface blackface story? Why did Gawker first break the Rob Ford crack scandal? Sometimes it's a story that Canadian media actually were sitting on. I mean, the Globe Mail at the time were sitting on the Doug Ford hash, uh, teenage hash empire story. So I think that in some cases, uh, the Americans are seem to be more interested in finding out what's happening with our leaders and our, and our stories than we are. And sometimes we actually have those stories. We just don't report them. So that's a, that's a hell of a good question. I mean, you would, you would know this better than me, but uh, is it that our standards are higher for reporting or just uh, people are trying to curry favor with those in power? What's, what's up with that? You asked somebody who you're going to get a very long and, and uh, familiar response to our listeners. I mean, basically, I, I feel like sometimes Canadian media misunderstands its role to buttress power rather than challenge it. And I also think that when you when you challenge them on why didn't you get this story, you'll get that response. Well, our standards are higher. And if your standards are so high in news reporting that you don't report news, there might be something wrong with the way you're pursuing the whole project. Fair enough. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. So, Kave, when we're having story meetings for shortcuts, I will admit there are weeks where it's a little thin out there and we don't know exactly which Canadian news stories to uh, to dedicate a segment to. Those weeks do occur and we always find something, uh, but sometimes it's a bit of a hunt. Other weeks, other weeks, there are people like turning on like the bat signal, like coming to us on Twitter in our inboxes saying, you have to talk about this very troubling story. Please, this is what you exist for. Canada land, please take this apart. Please look at this. This week, different people came to us with two different stories that they considered highly problematic and in dire need of discussion on this show. And Kaveh, both of these stories aired on the same episode of the same CBC show, The Fifth Estate. And I'm not going to get into too much context on The Fifth Estate. I think it is relevant, though, to point out that, like, we have been receiving a steady trickle of behind-the-scenes tips and gossip about just what a shit show the fifth estate has been. And some of it is is in public view. They have been, you know, diminished in their resources. I think they lost uh, a host. Their time slot has changed. There was a story in the Globe and Mail where like in, internal CBC documents emerged showing that the fifth estate, it's like basically in ratings freefall and desperate to reestablish itself. And there was this, this really cockamamie scheme to capitalize on the true crime craze by dedicating like a series of episodes to revisiting the Hamulka Bernardo uh, killings and rapes, to which um, one of their hosts, Jillian Finley, stepped out of usual CBC communications protocol and said, hell no, publicly, something to that effect. And uh, it just seemed like they're in a desperate position. And we're hearing that the show's future is very uncertain. So that might be relevant context for the episode of the Fifth Estate that ran against Ricky Gervais and the Golden Globes. And I'm going to take some time to talk about both of those stories with you. I know you've had a chance to, to look at them as well. And the first one is called Passport Babies, the growing shadow industry of birth tourism. And I think that that is going to like evoke something very direct. And in fact, it's the first thing you see in that Fifth Estate piece, it's Donald Trump ranting and raving about anchor babies, about uh, this this menace of foreigners who deliberately drop babies on American soil so the babies can sort of like steal American citizenship. Very, I, I would say, xenophobic and racist, um, fear-mongering on Trump's part. And it feels like the Fifth Estate was like, is there a Canadian version of this? And not only looking to match that with a Canadian version, but trying to prove that this is a really big problem. So the story that we get, Cave, is a story about uh, a similar circumstance taking place in Canada, supposedly, and the focus is on Chinese people coming to Canada and having babies, specifically in Richmond, B.C., and I think that the that the documentary, there's a lot of like really emotionally heightened stuff, like menacing music. Their babies born on Canadian soil are automatically Canadian citizens. Legal, but as controversial as its name birth tourism. There's sort of this like nice, kindly white woman who lives in Richmond, B.C., who is watching her neighborhood be overrun by these like birth tourism mansions. She experienced firsthand a growing phenomenon when she dropped by a new neighbor's house with cookies. It said, I hope you enjoy your new house. Come over anytime that you need help. And he took my cookies and then I looked at the back door and there was two carriers, baby carriers. 
and pregnant women. I started to see what was happening. Where Chinese women uh, are encouraged by businesses uh, operating, you know, websites in China to, you know, come to Canada, we'll hook you up, you can have your baby in a Canadian hospital. You have to pay, by the way. This is perfectly legal also. Uh, it costs like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to do so. But we have birthright citizenship in Canada, as 29 other countries do. And so the baby will have Canadian citizenship, and that's why these women are doing it, so they'll have more options later in life. And then we get these statistics about how this is a much bigger problem than just enrichment, and that there were 5,000 babies born to non-citizens in Canada. And I think that's where we first run into a lot of trouble here, because no information is given about how many of those babies were born to people who are students in Canada, who are migrant laborers in Canada who will be returning home, who are refugee claimants who are waiting to find out if they can stay in Canada. I mean, this is an international country where people are constantly coming and going, and we are just given no data whatsoever. And in fact, that 5,000 baby statistic, like StatsCan has the number like in the hundreds, which seems low to me, but 5,000 might be high. But we just are given like no context as to how wide scale a problem this is, if in fact it is a problem. I think it's fine for the media to look at something like this. And I think that the, the, the Fifth Estate documentary does, it does illustrate that this might be an issue for this particular hospital in Richmond, you know, because there are doctors who are getting paid a lot of extra money to prioritize those births, supposedly. And, you know, there, there are other issues brought up about the hospital having to, because like, it seems like some mothers actually get into a bad situation where they're expecting to pay like 20,000 bucks to have their kid delivered in Canada, but then the, the kid has to go to infant ICU and it's $10,000 a night. And those fees can rack up and then they have trouble collecting on those those fees. So like th that sounds like a fine topic for a news story. But the overall treatment was, you know what I mean? Like it really had like, you know, kind of like the footage of like somebody shouting at the camera. Wrong adviser. You can't pay Stop. Just tell me. I call police now. In a foreign language, you know, get off my property and like menacing music and a lot of a lot more heat than light. And I wasn't the only one who took it that way. There were a lot of people commenting on the problems with this piece, including a former Fifth Estate producer who came to us with uh, a message that they were very happy for us to share, though they don't want their name as part of this. Where's the evidence? The doc relies on two anecdotal voices, white nurse, brown doctor, who fail to provide hard evidence that birth tourism is actually proving to be a burden on the healthcare system, with the doctor actually saying, they can't just come, take the passport, and off you go without paying. Without providing a shred of evidence of a single birth tourist who left Canada without paying their hospital bills. So apart from advancing problematic notion of foreigners abusing our system, the doc is journalistically unsound, says a former journalist with the Fifth Estate. And they also say, I think I can understand how something like this happened. First of all, the show is predominantly white, middle class, upper middle class white. There are perhaps just 10 to 15 percent people of color on the staff of the show right now. Also, keep in mind, barely anyone on the show would have worked in non-mainstream media or even outside the CBC. If you're raised as a journalist at the CBC, you'll end up conforming and adhering to the power structure, which tends to shut down, discourage, out-of-the-box thinking. I can picture a producer thinking, hey, you know what, maybe we shouldn't have led with that Trump clip, but then either not being in a position of power to speak up, feeling too timid, or doubting whether his or her point was valid to begin with. I hate saying this, but it's true. Fifth estate docs are made by white people for white people, but no one realizes it because because they are just so used to doing things in this really formulaic way until some controversy like this pinches them all out of their slumber. It's not deliberately racist filmmaking, but it is so utterly ignorant that it ends up being a series of racist tropes 
And there's not a single person from the associate producer to the executive producer who might have even realized this. Cave, you watched this documentary. What did you make of it? Wow, a lot to unpack there. So I, I don't think I had as strong a reaction to it as you did. I share with you the view that it would have been much better if it had been laid out clearly um, like how big a problem this is, because, you know, that's something I kept wondering about. And I, th- I remember there was one clip where uh, the lady that, uh, you know, the, the story was, you know, it was basically told through her lens to some extent, the, you know, you refer to her as the, the white lady. You know, she was saying, well, like, is it enough if it's 8,000 people, 80,000 people? And I, I remember hearing that line and thinking to myself, well, that makes a huge difference, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, so, <laughs> you know, so, so I, I certainly um, agree with you there. I, I think the scope of the problem matters. But I, I think what's... Uh, gave me comfort in thinking that this is a real problem is the fact that they actually had the BC health minister, um, somebody that I didn't know, but but look him up and he's got, you know, very good sort of lefty credentials agreeing that this is a real problem. So I, I don't think uh, this is just some right wing, um, you know, attack on some some mythical problem. It seems to be a real problem, at least in British Columbia. You know, you mentioned why did it have to lead with Trump? I, I think it's really difficult to tell this story without putting the, the Trump angle in there. I mean, I think that's really, he's really the one that's brought this to the fore. Um, I think it would have been almost negligent to tell the story without talking about the, the Trump angle. You, you mentioned a couple of other things I think worth noting. You know, you said uh, there is no record of anyone not having paid their bills. I do recall in the segment they talk about one particular hospital having $2 million in outstanding bills. I, I don't know if that $2 million necessarily is because of birth tourism, you know, people running out on the bill and going back to China or whatever. Well, you said it. They don't clarify that point. They don't clarify that point, yeah. A lot of right. numbers, big numbers are thrown out, and they don't drill down, and I think maybe it's because they don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think it would have been better uh, to have better statistics on that to the extent that they're available. The other thing that I... Um, think worth mentioning, you know, in your reading of, of uh, you know, the, the producer, executive producers who had messaged you uh, with concerns about racism, what, what's not mentioned is that there are a couple of people of color featured pretty prominently in this story, um, both of them doctors. One, I, I don't know his ethnic background, I, you know, perhaps Middle Eastern or from India or something, who works at that hospital, noting that there, there really is a problem there. Um, and secondly, a, a doctor of Chinese background, um, who is involved in this process of you know helping Chinese people deliver here in, in Canada? Um, and he himself, you know, there was an instance where you know his picture was featured on a website that at least he claimed not to be aware of. So I, I think even these people recognize that there's some some issues. So I don't think it's entirely fair just to say you know this is a story told for white people by white people to scare white people. I, I don't think that's what it is. I, I, I got the impression that it really is a problem there, but the segment would have been much stronger if they told us the scope of the problem and the costs. Well, a couple things. I mean, first of all, you said certainly the piece shows that this is a problem in British Columbia. I'm not sure that it even does that. It convinced me that there's a problem at a hospital, you know, and you've got this doctor who's saying like, yeah, I do some of these births. I make some extra money, but really it's like dessert. It's it's not a significant part of my income. But sure, there are other people saying, well, no, in fact, this is taking a lot of resources from the hospital. It's very unclear to what extent it's a problem at this hospital. But I was convinced that there's something that obviously it's of public interest if the public health care system is involved in this in this private enterprise. And when you start getting into like, wow, somebody's turned this into a business and they're scraping the photographs of doctors and putting them, you know, advertising this in China to come to Canada to do this. 
I think there is a story there, but you do a great disservice to this story when you put it through this lens and like kind of like try to convince me without giving me any evidence that there's something to really be concerned and afraid about on a national level. And then I think to kind of ignore that this does have some relevance to wider discussion of immigration and xenophobia and racism. And it's interesting to see how a story like this evolves. You know, the, the Fifth Estate puts that on and then it gets picked up throughout the CBC in various ways. CBC News BC's Twitter account publishing a poll today, should babies born in Canada to non-residents automatically become citizens? Yes, no, undecided. So you can almost see the CBC opening up this debate about birthplace citizenship, which is kind of a fundamental law and something that I think a lot of Canadians, especially people like myself who come from immigrants, really have a very strong opinion about it and consider like a fundamental part of being a Canadian is that like a baby born in Canada is a Canadian. We can have a debate about that, but I think if we're going to have a debate about if we want to open that up, I need to know why. Like maybe some like we might be talking about births in the dozens when you actually drill down on those numbers to the extent of this problem. You know, maybe in the hundreds, like like is a situation at one hospital in Richmond worth a 20 minute documentary on the national program, The Fifth Estate? Maybe. Should that be whipped up into a menacing story of national significance, uh, I would say no. And and to your point about there being people of color represented in the story, that's fine. But I don't think that was the producer's point. The point was that in the editorial journalistic process of making that story, it was very clear to this former member of the team that those voices were either not included or not heard as part of the process. It felt like a tone-deaf piece to me and not a very rigorous piece of journalism. But I, I accept that there's some tension between our, our read of it. I, I want to move on, Calvé, to the other piece that followed on the Fifth Estate, which was called Confronting Hate, How Antifa is Tracking the Extreme Right. And this piece was billed as sort of an expose. The Fifth Estate takes you inside a secret world. Host Jillian Findlay goes on a virtual ride-along with undercover members of a loose collective known as Antifa. Now, this one came to our attention before it even aired because like even the very existence of a loose collection known as Antifa is a controversial topic. And Evan Balgord, who, uh, you know, he used to write for Canada Land as a journalist and for other places. Now he runs the uh, anti-hate network in Canada. He says, look, if there's a loose collective uh, of people fighting extreme right, white supremacy, neo-Nazism, that's us. Uh, Antifa is like... There are individuals out there who call themselves Antifa, but there really is no organization. So it was concerning to him that if CBC wanted to go and have an expose or a close look at the people who are fighting the rise of white supremacism in Canada, that he knew nothing about it and they hadn't come to him even for comment or he offered to fact check their piece and they turned him down. And he was concerned that what we were going to get was, well, I think what we got. And what we got was kind of another validation of a Trump trope. Uh, and that is, you know, Trump has has uh, infamously, famously said that, uh, you know, Charlottesville, there were fine people on both sides of that, both the neo-Nazis, white supremacists and those opposing them. There were good people on both sides. And then uh, the flip side of that is he said that Antifa is is essentially as dangerous a hate group as any white supremacist hate group. And it felt to me as a viewer that this piece basically set out to prove that Antifa are just as bad as the people they oppose. And the way that they define Antifa was really through like a handful of individuals. And even in that, there were some things in there that I found really, really concerning uh, about the approach. 
I'm going to share with you a few things. Gillian Finley introduces Joseph, an Antifa leader in Montreal who insisted in anonymity. So it's ironic that what he does is try to reveal the identity of others. And this is a consistent theme through the piece that uh, there's a, a hypocrisy in Antifa who what they do is they will take photographs of people from white supremacist websites or white nationalist group websites and say this person Here's their actual name and here's the place where they work and ask the employer, like, do you want to keep employing this person knowing that they're a member of a hate group? And uh, the parallel is drawn. Well, you want to protect your anonymity, but here you are exposing other people's. Of course, the difference is in the documentary itself that when one of the people who's profiled is revealed publicly, a extremist group breaks into his house and beats him in his own house. A gang of people beat the crap out of him in his own house. So there's a difference between the doxing uh, through a violent group that wants to assault you in your own home and this other practice, which is essentially saying, don't think you can go and publicly associate with the white supremacist group and have it have no impact on your life. And Jillian Finley, I think, takes a side. She says, essentially, you're, you're the, the thought, thought police. police. You don't like their thoughts. And so you're going to take it upon no, yourself. No, 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 no. And the part that really got me, Cave, she says, what gives you the right to go around and expose people and perhaps cost them their jobs? Which is just an extraordinary question for a journalist and especially an investigative journalist to ask, because that's what we do. We expose people for the things they do in public, especially. And yes, sometimes that will have an impact on their lives. And in fact, the very next thing that happens in this documentary is there is this woman who works in the healthcare system, but is also a member of this like white nationalist group in Quebec, who this supposed member of Antifa has doxed uh, supposedly and exposed. Well, the Fifth Estate documentary shares her name and goes to her employer and puts her face and her name on television, repeating exactly what this uh, supposed Antifa member did. So I was astonished by this piece. I know you had a chance to have a quick look at some of it. What did you think? So I'm going to say some stuff that will likely not uh, endear me to your Canada land listeners. Hey, I've got a lot of listeners who disagree with me as much as you do. So don't worry yeah. about that. <laughs> Good. Um, so, you know, first of all, you started with a, with a critique coming from your colleague or former colleague saying, you know, why didn't they come speak to my organization? Antifa is just sort of a random loose collection of people. And it's hard to maybe I misunderstood the, the critique, but I, I, that's how I took it. The problem is like Antifa doesn't, you know, is not an organization, an official organization. Like the only way you can talk about them is just as this loose collection of random people that go out there and, and basically do vigilante work. So I, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that critique, though, you know, perhaps it would have been useful to include other sort of anti-hate groups in that discussion. But I, I you know, the impression I had from from what I watched of that segment was that, uh, you know, they were it had a very, very narrow focus on, on this sort of vigilante version of, of Antifa. So that's point one. Um, you know, you, you talked about it, Antifa as being kind of a, a, a Trump trope and beating up on Antifa is something that uh, Trump and Trumpists do. I take the point. I know that, uh, you know, Trump has a tendency to exaggerate some of these threats. But, you know, if you watch kind of what's happening in certain places like Portland, Oregon, for example, it's hard to deny that there really is kind of a problem there with people kind of taking it upon themselves to fight whomever they define to be fascists and going out there and kind of beating them up. Some of those people that they target may legitimately be fascists. They're bad people. And some of them are just people that have different views than them, just right of center. And I think that's really the problem with Antifa is like they've decided that they are righteous. They are virtuous. They get to decide who's a Nazi and they get to punch Nazis. 
I don't want to live in a society where people just can kind of take it upon themselves to punch others because they've deemed them to be bad people. And then the last thing that you, you mentioned, you know, you, know, you criticize the fifth estate for engaging in sort of exposing these people much the same as Antifa had done. And I think the underlying argument that you're making, and, and maybe you're not making it, you know, tell me if, I, if I'm misreading your argument, is that you know, they're doing what journalists do. So really, it's, it's no worse. I, I don't think that argument is actually correct. I mean, I think there are journalistic standards. I mean, you, you talk about uh, the fifth estate having a lot of problems, but at the end of the day, they have certain standards and they don't go around kind of ruining people's reputations um, and destroying people unless there's good evidence. Uh, as far as I know, Antifa members don't really adhere to those standards. So, you know, again, I, I do have a problem with people taking it upon themselves to identify um, you know, who is or is not a Nazi. Again, I admit some of these people may legitimately be awful Nazis, but I, I don't want to sort of delegate that power to just random Antifa activists uh, for them to go around, dox people, punch people. And I think that's a that's a legitimate issue that we ought to be thinking about. I think we need to back up like way back. And I think that this is probably where any CBC report on Antifa should have started, which is with the question, does Antifa even exist? Like, what the hell are we even talking about here? I know that Evan Balgord's organization exists. I know that Anti-Racism Canada exists. I know that there are demonstrations where members of Sons of Odin or whatever other groups show up and a few other people, usually a small group of other people show up and get in scuffles with them. I know that there's some people in those scuffles who have used violence. I know there are other people who don't call themselves Antifa, who merely do the work of taking photographs from groups of uh, extreme right, nationalist, neo-Nazi groups, whatever they are, and merely say, hey, this person has put themselves in public and I am going to find out who they are and put their picture on my website and connect a few dots. And you ask, you're not comfortable delegating that role of uh, discerning who's a Nazi and who isn't to somebody from Antifa. Uh, and what gives them the right is what Jillian Finley asked. Well, the same, we all have that right. We all have the right to take a picture from the internet and find out what that person's name is and really just try to enforce a social standard and say, hey, this person belongs to a group that, you know, I consider them to be Nazis or I consider them to be racists, but you are their employer. You can look into this and find out for yourself. But here they are at the following four rallies. And I would prefer if people in news organizations were doing that work. But unfortunately, news organizations are not. The fact that after Charlottesville, there were people who made it their hobby to go through those photographs and name and shame those people. They didn't break into their homes and beat the shit out of them. They said, here's a guy in khaki pants with a tiki torch shouting, the Jews will not replace us. He has a name. He has a workplace. He's in touch with people of color. He's responsible in the healthcare system for providing services. This isn't right. I think you should do something about it. And then that organization's deciding whether or not to do something about it. That is civil society working. That's how it's supposed to happen. That is not people in masks beating up people on the street. And what's happened is that the word Antifa has become a boogeyman word to encapsulate everything in one bucket as you just put them all in one bucket. I'm not really into punching people in the streets, but you know what? Sometimes there are extremist groups that show up at pride parades in order to cause violence and other people show up with bandanas over their face and essentially just create a human wall so that a pride parade can take place. So I guess I don't know where that stands. Like they are getting physical. But they're also creating a space for civil society to operate. I feel like this was another case where the CBC failed to even prove their initial premise that the thing they're covering has an existence. And the fact that they weren't interested in the thing that does exist, which is anti-racism Canada, anti-hate Canada, shows me that there was something of an agenda in who they were looking for and what they were trying to describe. 
So here's the, yeah, I'm, I'm still here. So here's the question, though. How quickly does, you know, identifying tiki torch carrying people and swastika wearing people transform into something else, which is just going after anybody that we happen to politically disagree with? I would argue to you that that happens pretty quickly. And I think we've seen lots of examples of that, at least south of the border with sort of Antifa beating up random people that they've identified as Nazis. You know, Andy, Andy Noy, I think, you know, you, you probably know him. He's a sort of a citizen journalist. He gets called a Nazi a lot. He's been beaten up a lot. Um, I don't love everything that he does, but I think it's a stretch to call him a Nazi. And yet there are people that call him that and, and have beaten him up. Um, you know, think about Twitter and how often people are called Nazis there just for expressing right of center views. You know, I, I don't shed a lot of tears over people that are tiki torch carriers and, and swastika wearers being exposed and their employers being informed of their views. But I, I really do worry about the slippery slope there because I, I think this kind of thing can very quickly get out of hand and start targeting people that don't actually have views that one would, could fairly characterize as, as Nazi views. You can worry about the slippery slope if you want, but uh, I, 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 will, I will worry about the slippery slope because I think we're seeing it. I don't think it's far-fetched. All right. I, I feel like I was warned about that slippery slope uh, a year ago, two years ago, and three years ago, and I don't feel like we're awash in uh, Antifa violence and uh, regular Joes being uh, smeared as Nazis and beaten up on the streets. I'm certainly not seeing that happen in Canada. What I am seeing is a lot of uh, a mainstream justification to sort of like, um, you know, ah, sons of Odin, Antifa, a pox on both their houses. Uh, they deserve each other. They're both, They're all a bunch of nutcases, so I don't have to worry about any of this. I think that this is actually an incredibly disproportionate situation where we are seeing a widespread rise in uh, extreme right groups and, frankly, an undocumented even existence of the supposed corollary on the other side. I'm just not convinced that this even is a thing. Before I even get worried about whether or not where it's going to lead us and what the slippery slope is, I don't even know if it exists. But I guess this is something upon which you and I disagree. Absolutely. I thank you for talking with me about it. Uh, that is your Canada Land Shortcuts. My pleasure. Thanks so much for this. This is great. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Where can people find you, Kave? At Kshahrouz, K-S-H-A-H-R-O-O-Z on Twitter. Our website is canadalandshow.com and Commons continues its triumphant series on dynasties. This week's episode is all about the murder in the Olin family. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us. We rely on your support at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.